Magazines and Monsters, episode 72. Kolchak the Night Stalker from 1972 and Scream of the Wolf from 1974. presents an original motion picture produced especially for the movie of the week. Tonight on the movie of the week. May I introduce myself? My name is Kolshak of the Daily Chronicle. Kolshak reports the bizarre, the supernatural. The unexplainable. You again in another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field is issued one of these, and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorzini's chest? No, no, into his heart. Darren McGavin, the Night Stalker. Hey everybody, Billy D, aka Doc Strange here, back with another recording for the show, and this is going to be a blast because I have a double feature, something I've never done before on the show, so that means I had to call in the reinforcements here. I needed a podcasting duo to help me out. Uh, one half of this duo has been on the show before. Uh, welcome back, Richard Chamberlain. How are you, Rich? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, you and I talked oh, at this point of this recording, it's probably about six months ago, and I did remember that you had an affinity for uh, the first film we're going to talk about tonight. And I think you had talked about it on the B-movie cast. So I thought, well, I will be penciling in Richard for this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, as sweet spot, for sure. Mm -hmm. And then uh, your podcasting partner from the Classic Bars Club podcast, Jeff Owens, is here as well. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing very well. Thank you. And I appreciate being asked to be on. I have a sweet spot for these movies as well. I know when Richard was on, he mentioned my love for Dark Shadows. And so both of these movies, having Dan Curtis involved, I'm very excited to participate in the conversation. Yeah, I'm a big fan of you guys. You guys have such a really good podcast out there. Everybody needs to give it a shot. The Classic Horrors Club. You know, you'll do retrospectives on creators. You'll do themes. I love what you guys do over the summertime. Your your drive-in movies uh, over the summertime that you guys do. That is a really good uh, theme there, and it's a blast. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of fun. You. Yeah, we're 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 gassing up the car now. You know, to, <laughs> and to drive in. It's right around the corner. Mm hmm. Just don't forget to throw a couple six packs in the back. <laughs> 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 so. All right. Well, yeah, we are here to talk about, a, like I said, a double feature. Uh, we're going to talk about two made-for-television films from the 1970s. This is a, you know, a, a big uh, interest of mine and you guys as well. Uh, you know, Jeff, we spoke a little bit before we uh, hit the record button here that you know you're covering a lot of these and have been for, I think you said almost three years on your blog, correct? 
Yes, every Friday I do a a column called TV Terror Guide, and I had gone actually interestingly through uh, the Night Stalker television series and and looked at each episode, did a couple other shows like that, and then I said, what am I going to do next? And so many of them started coming out on DVD and Blu-ray, and I thought, well, I'm just oh, and I plus I got a book that uh, of course I'm forgetting the name, but pretty much went through everyone between 70 and 79. And so I was kind of following along with that and just started out watching one and writing about it every week. Well, fantastic. Yeah, you will have to give me the name of that book when we stop recording because I would <laughs> definitely like to check that out. That sounds great. So yeah, like you mentioned, uh, the first movie up here we're going to be talking about is The Night Stalker from 1972. And I know, Rich, you are a big fan of this movie in particular, are you not? I am, and, and this was a lot of fun revisiting this one because my my wife loves the night stalker series and we've been watching the series kind of ad nauseum for quite a while on uh, me tv because it's part of their sci-fi saturday night but the first two movies aren't part of that cycle because they were actually you know made for tv movies so they uh they don't tend to to get played as much if really at all on television anymore and uh, having seen so many of the TV shows kind of, you know, again and again, it was nice. And it, it was kind of a nice reminder on some of the differences in, in this movie compared to the TV series, which I know we'll talk about. But it was it was a lot of fun this go around having continued to watch the TV show to be reminded how how fun, you know, definitely the first movie is. Mm -hmm, for sure. And, you know, Jeff, you had mentioned, uh, you know, Dan Curtis and. That is a huge name for any, uh, you know, super fans out there of, you know, the genre and this era as well. You know, uh, probably most famously starting with Dark Shadows, right? Yes, yes. And every, well, not every, but, you know, he took literature uh, stories, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and, and worked them into Dark Shadows. And then also made a series of TV movies in the late 60s and early 70s based on some of those works. So he, you know, I, I never thought of, I don't think of him as horror because he did other stuff, but yet really that was his prevalent work. I, I first saw him on the Emmy Awards when he won for um, Winds of War. And, mm -hmm. you know, this big guy walked up there and he, he said, I want to thank ABC for ponying up the dough. <laughs> and he just <laughs> seemed like a, a real person, you know, of, uh, so I, I have I sometimes have trouble connecting those two, but apparently that was his genre. He really liked it and he did some great stuff. Yeah, I think the first time I remember seeing his name, you know, in the credits of something was watching. And this was not first run, obviously, down the road, but uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, the one that has Jack Palance in it. Uh, what about you, Rich? Does it what what sticks out other than maybe uh, Dark Shadows for you with Dan Curtis? You know, um, I had to kind of chuckle, you know, I think we were, you know, five seconds into the podcast and, and uh, Dark Shadows got mentioned and I'm like, <laughs> how am I going to get a Doctor Who reference in here? And I, I don't think I will. I think I'll just tap right now. <laughs> um, you know, for I'm trying to think of like what my earliest experience with with Dan Curtis might have been aside from from this. And it was probably watching like the like Dracula uh with jack palance mm -hmm. 
and uh, was it the uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from the late uh, late sixties that he did? And I don't think I think it was probably the late eighties, early nineties before I I uh, I saw those. So when I think of the Night Stalker and Dan Curtis, my nostalgia kicks in, and I think of the CBS Late Movie because that was my that was how I watched the Night Stalker originally um, when it was in its you know second go round, uh, and of course. You know, anyone of our age will remember the CBS Late movie was just awesome because that's where you could see Hammer movies, you know, occasionally. And uh, not to mention I, the new Avengers uh, TV series was on the CBS Late movie back before they gave up that uh, post-news slot to uh, David Letterman and, and the late night shows. Uh, that was That was where they would play a lot of their recent run programming and the night stalker wasn't uh, it was i think it was an abc show cbs acquired it and uh it as i've read before i think it got you know almost you know a, a second wind uh, of popularity by being in that uh, cbs late night slot so that's that's the where I, I think of you know for me dan curtis um i don't have the the dark shadows connection as much i didn't grow up watching it i have watched it and I have enjoyed everything I've seen. It is daunting because I, for me, I'm a completist. And so if I, if I really watch it, I want to start with episode one and make my way through. And that's a daunting task because <laughs> how many thousands of episodes are there? So um, someday, you know, I'd love to do it. I, I would love to to watch all the Dark Shadows episodes and then, you know, I'll be 90 years old and I'll call Jeff up and I'm like, I finally get it. I finally get it. Um, <laughs> but for me, the CBS late movie is is the nostalgia trip for me. I just I think of that anytime I see I see Kolchak. I can actually visualize some of the, you know, ads that they would uh, they would play for it. And, and I remember the the theme was never played in its entirety. It was always part of like whatever the the the. Uh, the hype for the episode was, and then it would just kind of go right into the, to the story. So that, that's for me, nostalgia for sure. Oh, fantastic. Um, and one of the other huge names behind this is Richard Matheson. Now that's again, every time I hear that, I think of, uh, Oh, I think didn't, didn't he write the, uh, uh, last man on earth? I, I think he was, uh, you know, the, the, one of the guys behind that one. And uh, the, the, I know there are some people that like and do not like the Vincent Price version. Uh, I really love that version. I understand it's like, you know, shoestring budget and, you know, it's got its issues. But that's one of my favorite. It's not my favorite, but it's one of my favorite Vincent Price films. But, yeah, he was a, a writer and did tons of, you know, screenplays. And it, he's basically like, you know, kind of like a giant in the industry. Uh, what do you think about him, Jeff? Oh, I love Richard Matheson. Every time I hear his name, I know it's a, a movie I've got to see. I've never read any of his original uh, fiction. I'd like to, uh, but it, it nine times out of ten, it means it, it's a great movie. And uh, both of these were written by Richard Matheson. So uh, mm -hmm. we're in for a treat as far as the story and its uh, structure and elements go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really a... Uh, uh pretty well-respected guy behind the scenes there and uh, yeah, a master. So that's, that's another huge name here. Uh, any thoughts on uh, Matheson, Rich? Well, you know, um, how about a Star Trek connection? <laughs> mm, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, I kind of forgot, you know, that, that there was, uh, 
that there was one episode that Richard Matheson wrote for for Star Trek, and that's The Enemy Within. Uh, mm. One of the very first episodes, season one, I think it was the third episode produced, fifth episode that aired. That's where we get the dual Kirks, the, the good Kirk and the bad Kirk, which I think stands as one of the all-time best. Uh, but I also, you know, gosh, he, he did so many, there's so much that he did. You know, when you're talking about um, I Am Legend was the was the book that became The Last Man on Earth or The Omega Man, which is one of my favorite Charlton Heston, you know, post-apocalyptic films from the 70s. Uh, the Raven is another one of my all-time favorites, and he did the screenplay for that. And, of course, The Twilight Zone. I mean... He did 16 episodes of The Twilight Zone, and uh, I, I'm just, I pulled up a list here real quick, but there's Nick of Time, which is the one with William Shatner, and the little um, the little thing on the table that they kept putting the money in, they gave the fortunes, and kind of was telling their, their future, telling them what to do, and The Invaders, where I think it had Agnes Moorhead in it, where the aliens came crashing through her her attic and there's not a word of dialogue until the last what minute of the uh, of the episode and um, several other good episodes nightmare at 20,000 feet another classic with with William Shatner was written by Matheson so um, yeah I love his work absolutely love his work I've never read I am legend I'd love to read it I have it it's on my shelf and has been there forever uh, I'd love to to compare it to the the different versions of that story that have been made. And also, you wrote uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man, so we really should mention that. Well, and I and uh, yes, and and Duel. He he did the screenplay mm. for Duel, which I just recently uh, watched. Actually, it had been a very long time since I'd seen uh, seen Duel, and I love that. Sanguli played it several months ago, and it was on the DVR, and I watched it the other night, and. Uh, I forgot how fun that is. That's just uh, <laughs> that's a crazy kind of made-for-TV movie, 1971 yep. Spielberg. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, can't go wrong there for sure. Yeah, that's that's again two two giants with you know television and movies here with those two guys. And then it's funny, the director, I I probably did know, but just forgot who the director was of this film. But when I looked at it. It took me a minute, and I'm going through my head. I'm thinking John Llewellyn Moxie. That's a, you know not a, a common name. I'm thinking, where do I know this guy from? And then I'm like, oh yeah, one of my favorite old school horror flicks, kind of like a a proto pre Amicus uh, horror film, City of the Dead with Christopher Lee. He was the guy in that one. Like he he directed that one. I'm like, that's him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, that that's one of my favorite Christopher Lee films from that time period for sure. Yeah, real creepy film. And it was, you know, Max Rosenberg and Milton Sabotsky. Yeah, I think one of them only got credit, but they were both kind of in on that film before like Amicus, you know, films in the studio even existed. That was, you know, one of those early ones there that they kind of did together. And I love that film. I, that's one of those films that never gets old for me. I could literally watch that once or twice a month, year round, and it wouldn't get old. I just love that movie so much. Fun movie. And he so, directed a lot of these 70s TV movies in the, this genre. Uh, look, I would say the majority of the the ones he did for TV were telefrights. That's what the book calls them. Oh yeah, yeah, that book you were saying about. Yeah, I'll have to check that out because that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I'd really like it, it just to find more uh, movies that I don't even know about. Uh, just to use it for that, and then also probably all the uh, 
really cool uh, facts and things like that too. Really looking forward to that. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'll definitely have to get that one from you. Uh, if I interrupt done. in the middle with a, a shriek, it's because I remembered the name <laughs> of it. <laughs> only been referencing it for three years and uh, here I can't remember the name of it. He, uh, he directed Genesis 2, the uh, movie that we covered several years ago on our, on our podcast that uh, Gene Roddenberry's Hmm. Second attempt at a Star Trek series-ish. Uh, uh, Genesis 2 was the first one, and then it, they followed it up with Planet Earth and then Strange New World. So Genesis 2, a lot of people tend to like that one the most. I tend to like Planet Earth a little better because it had John Saxon in it. And I, I really, anything John Saxon's in makes me smile. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, you look down his list, a lot of TV shows as well. Um like seven episodes of Mission Impossible, um, uh, Circle of Fear, the anthology series from 72 that was originally called Ghost Story with Sebastian Cabot as the uh, as the host, if you will. Um, uh, the House That Wouldn't, that House That Would Not Die, 1970. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. Cool. Yeah. And this is based off of a, a novel by a guy named Jeff Rice. And I don't think it was a published novel at the time. So I think they kind of—I don't want to cast dispersions here, but I think they, you know, said to this guy, "Oh, that's a nice novel you've got there that's unpublished. How about we uh, make a movie out of it?" And they made a movie out of it that did really well. And I'm not sure Mr. Rice was compensated properly from things I've heard here and there. What? uh, Any information on that from your end, Jeff? I don't have any information, but I do know they published it after the series or the movie aired. Uh, I've got the paperback uh, Mm. of the night. Stalker. I always thought it was the book came first. Oftentimes they do, but uh, no, I, that was something I learned later after several viewings that uh, the movie came first and then he published the book. I feel like I either read or heard somewhere that he kind of got like boned a little bit. <laughs> you know, they had this very successful uh, movie. It did really, really well in the ratings. And then obviously subsequently a TV series too. And he was kind of left in the, uh, left in the dust uh, so i feel bad for the guy because it's really cool it's a, it's a great concept um and then uh, well why don't we look at the cast here so obviously front and center darren mcgavin uh again he was to me cast perfectly for this film and the tv show uh what about uh darren mcgavin rich i you know for his portrayal of kolchak in this first movie is a little different than we see definitely by the series because he has a girlfriend in this movie, which um, it, you know, certainly is something by the, the series, you wouldn't imagine Kolchak even having any romantic interest. <laughs> he just was kind of asexual. But, you know, in this first movie, I mean, he was clearly, I, mean, he, I think he was in love with Gail Foster. Um, I mean, certainly he wanted to, to get married and, and wanted her to, you know, repeatedly wanted her to leave the, the oh, they never called it, you know, prostitution. It was implied that she was maybe doing some stuff that uh, wasn't, wasn't, you know, uh, legal per se. Uh, <laughs> I guess maybe in Vegas it would be, but you know, <laughs> at the end of the movie, you know, they, <clears throat> you know, spoiler alert, um, they make sure she leaves town at the end of the film. And I think they reference that, you know, they didn't want her kind around here or some nonsense like that. I, I loved his portrayal in this one. He was almost a bit more, 
a little more human here than you know. By the time you get to the uh, to the series, he's he's a bit more one dimensional. A lot of fun, absolutely. But here, you know, he he had never encountered anything before, so this is his first time encountering something strange, and um, you know, there was there was definitely a, a a level of humanity, I think, in this movie that definitely maybe was missing a little bit from the series, not in a you know in a you know a way that deters from your enjoyment of the series, but with that extra you know what you've got an extra. 20 25 minutes of runtime with this movie um they were able to include some scenes between him and, and gail foster that would have been on the cutting room floor on a, on a tv episode but I, I enjoyed seeing that um definitely and i think there was almost a little more respect between him and tony vincenzo because in the series they're just kind of always butting heads but you know i think especially towards the end of the of the movie. I mean, I get the gist that Tony does really respect Carl and that Tony did not like kind of what was happening to Carl at the end of the film, um, which you get hints of that a little bit in the series, but never, I don't think, as strong as they did it here. Uh, Darren McGavin just was so fun in, in this in this movie. Um you know, I, I've seen him in a lot of other things, but for me, he's either Carl Kolchak or he's the old man from A Christmas Story. I mean, those are, are like the two definitive roles, and I'm not sure they're anything remotely alike, but uh, I know when he was on the X-Files in the 90s, you know, they wanted him. Chris Carter wanted him to be Carl Kolchak in that episode, and for whatever reason, he re refused to play Kolchak. He didn't want to do that, and so he kind of played the founder of the X-Files, it would have been so much fun if he would have been Carl Kolchak in that episode. I mean, in a lot of ways, he kind of was, if I recall that episode. There was some strong similarities, but for whatever reason, he he didn't want to play it, and I, I've never been able to find out why. You know, I, I don't know that he was uh, ashamed, you know, or embarrassed by what he did, but because I know he was very connected to the series and making sure that you know everything was as top-notch as it could be so the only thing i can think of is maybe he had such a strong connection he felt like the character needed to stand on its own and not just be included as part of the x-files although i think it would have been a lot of fun uh, yeah he's top-notch for sure jeff what are your thoughts on darren mcgavin oh he's amazing in this and i don't I, of course, you've seen him in a million things. I don't really recall anything other than Christmas Story, you know, that I would think of Darren McGavin from. But mm -hmm. this is his movie all the way. I mean, the vampire is almost secondary. And if you are questioning that, if this movie was about the vampire, it would have just ended when uh, at the conclusion. But no, it goes on because we he, the vampire might be dispatched. But what's going to happen to Carl Kolchak? And then the movie goes on and we see what happens. So. I think without him, I I just don't see the movie being nearly as good. He is just absolutely perfect. This is his movie. He is the character. It's, it's, he's just amazing. Yeah, totally agree 100%. Well, you guys had mentioned a couple of the other stars here. We had, uh, you know, Carl's uh, girlfriend, Gail Foster, uh, was 
played by Carol Lindley. And <laughs> the first time I saw this movie, I was like, hey, it's the girl that was wigging out on the Poseidon adventure. That's <laughs> 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 right away. I was like, that's what my mind went right there. Cause that's pretty much my favorite disaster movie of all time right there. So, yeah, she was really, really good in this one, too. Like you said, it was a little ambiguous. I think she was, you know, working at the casino, like maybe a legit job there on the books, but also maybe, uh, you know, doing either something on the side or, you know, uh, a lady of the night, you know, maybe some kind of uh, entertainment for hire for maybe people even at a casino. It was They never came out and said that, but like you had said, Rich, uh, some of the things they said, you know, at the end of the movie kind of leads you to believe that's what was going on there. But, you know, again, it, half of it was probably legal, if not all of it back then. And it probably is now, too. So what did you think of her, Jeff? Oh, I like Carol Lindley. She was in another sort of genre movie, Bunny Lake is Missing, from 1965. I remember her from that and then, of course, Poseidon Adventure. She she has a unique role in this, and this is atypical for a vampire movie. You kind of think she would become a victim or she would be captured by the vampire, and she's not. In fact, I forgot after some initial scenes that she was in that <laughs> she was in even in the movie because she's not in it for a long time and then she comes back and i think she's good mm -hmm. yeah I, again I, I thought this was going to be a happy ending for you know kolchak and her and it most certainly is not so uh what about carolyn lee uh, rich i've always found her to be a very unique actress um she's got a particular style about her that i think had she been born in a different time i think she would have been perfect in like a film noir film you know that that era the i just kind of see her as as the uh femme fatale in in, in, a, in a film noir um there's something about her uh that is just almost otherworldly at times um you don't quite see it as much in this film um because she doesn't get you know much to do other than you know, kind of be Kolchak's, you know, sidekick at, you know, in certain scenes. But I love telling the one scene she she brings out the stack of books. I mean, she's the one that kind of sets him on on the path, right, of, of the fact that it's a vampire. Mm -hmm. You could kind of, <clears throat> an argument could be made that, you know, that, that moment where she hands him the stack of books and says, you need to look at this and this and this is the moment that, he turns the corner and truly becomes Kolchak the Night Stalker. He, he's on that path. He's in this moment where he's fighting what appears to be something that could be a vampire, but maybe it's not. But that's the moment, I think, that she she nudges him down a different path that ends up setting, setting the course for not just this movie and the next, but the whole series. Yeah, and you had also mentioned uh, the you know the the editor of the paper, uh, Tony Vincenzo, who uh, Carl uh, butts heads with, uh, you know, in the series, and then a little bit here as well in this film, uh, played by Simon Oakland. And <laughs> at some point, it kind of like dawned on me. I thought to myself, wait a minute, it's almost like you know Carl Kolchak is like Peter Parker, and Tony Vincenzo is J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of. You know, Peter's a you know a weird dorky guy, but he's got this gorgeous girlfriend, and he's got this editor that's always busting his balls so wait a minute here yeah. <laughs> oh that was too funny but yeah i did like their relationship and you had mentioned rich too uh how towards the end of the film you you can see he does he might beat up on kolchak a little bit 
but he he does really like him and respect him. He just really wasn't always showing him that by how he reacts to the end of the film. Well, and he even says in that last scene, you know, it's like you you really are a good writer, Carl. And that's mm-hmm. where I get the the feeling is like he knows where what Carl is up against. You know, when he goes down to talk to the police, and you know, Tony's hands are tied. He can't he can't do anything. And I think we get a moment or two like that in the in the TV series in certain episodes. Most of the time, they're just jawing back and forth at each other, and they're that kind of almost a comic relief at times in the uh, in the episodes. But there are some moments where where Tony certainly will come to Carl's defense. But this this moment at the end of the film, this first film, I think, is one of Tony's shining moments and shows that he really does respect Carl as a writer, even though you know Carl drives him nuts. <laughs> and uh, and will certainly be driving him nuts for several years to come. Um, but uh, he's an interest. Simon Oakland is an interesting actor. He's always kind of playing the the hard ass, you know, character. I think he was in an episode of Big Valley where he played a you know a, kind of a hard nosed you know rancher or something. That seems to be the role that I always see him in. I've never seen him in anything other than some type of authoritarian, you know, pain in the butt uh, to the good guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, is Tony Vincenzo J. Jonah Jameson, uh, Jeff? <laughs> yeah, that's that's perfect. I had never thought of that. That's fantastic. I love their relationship. It's and this goes to the quality again of Darren McGavin. It's like we're dropped into this relationship that's existed for some time. I mean, we don't miss a beat with their chemistry and you know they have a history and you just you want to know some of their stories that happened before this. It's just so good. There, I mean, there's no time for exposition, you know, how they got there, anything. You just, like I say, you're dropped in and it just feels not even knowing these ca- characters that you're just like putting on a warm sweater, you know, it's just perfect. And I think that's, that's on both actors. I think, yes. you know, because you could take the same script with with two actors of lesser ability and you wouldn't get that same feeling because the script doesn't give it to you in black and white dialogue you it's got to be in the presentation that you're seeing from the actors so that's where i think darren mcgavin and simon oakland you know are fantastic in those roles yeah i then we had ralph meeker as uh, bernie jenks who was an fbi agent and kind of like a buddy confidant for uh, kolchak I don't really know that actor from anything else. Uh, either of you guys know anything about him? Well, the name was so familiar, and I thought, you know, it had come up watching classic horror films, but not really. I mean, he was in a lot of things, a lot of westerns, but uh, not. Yeah, I, I don't really know. I, I wouldn't have recognized him. I just kind of know the name. Mm-hmm. I did see his name as being in the cast for Food of the Gods, so. <laughs> We we will be seeing him again uh, <laughs> soon, but uh, beyond that, no, I, I wasn't familiar with the name either. Well, then we have Sheriff Warren Butcher, and that is <laughs> Claude Akins. Uh, he had been around for a long time. He had been, you know, again westerns out the wazoo, and a lot of times he plays like a a grouchy, overbearing like cop, right? I mean, that's that's kind of who he is. What do you think? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, def- definitely. Uh, you know, uh, Sheriff Lobo from mm-hmm. uh, BJ and the Bear. Um, of course, uh, 
Planet of the Apes fans will remember him as Aldo from uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I mean, he's a little little crabby, a little grouchy there. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't he come back uh, in in another episode of of the Night Stalker? Um, maybe I'm maybe not. But I thought I thought that he came back. I know. Well, he was definitely in. Um, oh, what's the uh, um, the Norlis tapes where he played it? He mm-hmm. played almost the same character. Yeah. In in the Norlis tapes, which uh, you know, gosh, they they should have just named him the same because he really was <laughs> was the same type of character. Yeah. Every time I've seen him, it's like uh, I'm not sure that I've ever seen him play anything other than that um, authoritarian, you know, authoritarian sheriff. Um, yeah, he's he's kind of perpetually, you know, grouchy and and uh, and getting after somebody for doing something. And you look at his credits, it's like, yeah, it's there's definitely more than one sheriff or more than one detective in his uh, in his filmography for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he was he was typecast, but he was good at it. And hey, he was making paychecks, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, and the only other two names that from the cast that jumped out at me was, of course, Elisha Cook Jr. Uh, he's got a, a very small part in this, but I love seeing him in stuff. It's just, it, no matter what it is, Salem's Lot, Star Trek, it's literally, when I see him pop up in a movie, it's kind of like, you know, when I watch a Hammer movie, when I see Michael Ripper, the movie is just a little bit better because he's in it. That's kind of how I feel about Elisha Cook Jr. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, he's 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 good he's he's fun to watch Who, who's the other one you're gonna say kent smith uh no actually barry oh. atwater because i recognize him from here we go rich star trek yeah. <laughs> he was in that one episode of star trek where he didn't really say a whole lot but and he got killed but i recognized him from that but that was it from like a just sight for me as a looking now the guy that played the district attorney uh the actor kent smith he looked yes. familiar to me but i couldn't think off the top of my head where I had seen him before, but his face looked very familiar to me. Yeah, he was in Cat People. Oh, wow, the original one. So, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, there's a couple of the other, the cast, though, that are, are familiar. We have uh, Larry Linville, who played the, um, oh, what was it, the... Um, the Doctor. The Doctor, yeah, I can't remember his name, but that's Frank Burns from MASH. Yeah, MASH, yeah, I'm looking and, at that uh, right now. And I another, didn't recognize him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I recognized his voice right away. I think before he even took off the mask, I forgot that he was in it. Um, now, one guy I did recognize, although he didn't look exactly the same because he had a mustache, was the car salesman was Stanley Adams, who played Cyrano Jones on Star Trek, the Trouble with Tribbles episode. He was he was dealing in Tribbles, and here he is dealing in cars. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I did not recognize him at all. <laughs> Yeah, and I again, I think that, you know, I'm looking at the list real quick to see, but I, I want to swear that he pops up. Uh, yeah, he does. He appears as a bartender in an episode of uh, Kolchak, the Night Stalker. And I swear he was in. Yeah, he was a truck driver in the Norlis tapes. So used a few times here by by Dan Curtis to, to be uh, in the background. Familiar Familiar voice, familiar character around this time period. Did a lot of TV work, yeah, around this time. Mm-hmm. Really cool, yeah. Anything else from uh, the cast for you, Jeff? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we 
mentioned Kent Smith. Mm-hmm. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah, again, great cast. Everything really is centered around Kolchak, but all these other, you know, uh, actors and actresses, they do they do a fine job. They do really add to the film, even though it really is all about Darren McGavin, you know. But again, I, I don't look at one person in this cast and think, oh, they were miscast or uh, they were just kind of vanilla. I felt like everybody was cast really well and, you know, did a good job in this. Yeah, the only one it was missing was Miss Emily from the series. <laughs> Miss Emily, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love her. I think it was one thing the series did did well too. There always was was character actors in, in sometimes just cameo roles, but they would always enhance the episode with maybe the one or two scenes they were in. That was just uh, you're always, you almost could almost guarantee you'd see somebody in every episode of of the Night Stalker that you'd recognize. And uh, I don't know if that was just this time period and that we obviously grew up in this time period. So these are all, you know, faces that are familiar to us because we you know, watched so much other TV from this time period. You, you get very familiar with a lot of the faces and such. But um, it is comforting, I think, when you watch the series that uh, there's when you see those familiar character actors that, that pop up, even if for a scene or two. Just kind of like a warm blanket. It's like, oh, that person and that person. It's just like you, 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 you feel like you, you know, the cast and you know these characters simply because of other works that we've seen them in. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that absolutely. Yeah, and again, I just, I, I don't know who did the casting for this, but I, I think they did a fantastic job because again, I literally have no complaints about anybody in the cast, which is hard to say. Usually, if I watch a movie. There's at least one or two roles, you know, even if they're just tiny little roles where I'll be like, mm, I don't know about that, but I, I can't really nitpick this uh, movie. And again, a, a made for television movie uh, for its its cast. Not not at all. Not one bit. So. All right. Well, if you guys are ready, I'll just do a, a quick little plot synopsis here from IMDb and then we can jump into the movie. OK. Sounds good. good. Carl Kolchak is a newspaper reporter with an abrasive personality that has gotten him fired 10 times from various big city papers. Now he's reduced to reporting for a relatively small time paper in Las Vegas. It's here he gets the story of his life. But will the local sheriff or the DA or even his own boss let him print it? Uh, Pretty, pretty succinct there. I like that, though. But uh, okay, so I love how this movie starts out. You know, it starts out with, you know, some narration by Kolchak. Uh, you know, we're already he's basically starting to tell us a story after it's already happened. But, you know, you really don't get much from the beginning here. But I do love narration uh, to start out or even at any point during a film, as long as it's not, you know, overdone or overwrought, which I don't think this is. I, I love that opening scene. So what did you think of this opening scene, Jeff? I liked it. And the this is probably obvious. I don't honestly know that I've caught it before, though, is that the ending of that opening narration is also the uh, closing narration. Uh, so that was kind of interesting how that kind of wrapped around and, and tied it all together. And yeah, it opens with the the attack of uh, one, the vampire attacking a victim in the alley. And this is filmed really well because he there's sort of a I don't know what you call it, some type of a cut in the editing where, you know, the vampire throws the victim in the alley. He ran lands in a pile of trash. And then the next shot is the trash trucks rolling in to pick up the trash. And then the next shot, it, they kind of just interconnect. And it's a point of view shot of the body during the autopsy, looking up at the coroner and uh, a couple of others 
cutting into him. It's that's a terrific start to the and to be honest, I don't think Moxie usually has a, a very distinctive touch. I mean, he's very capable, but this to me just seemed like a really, really strong, well constructed opening. What do you think, Richard? Uh, I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, you know, that's the series kind of carried a little bit of the same format. There was always some narration from from Carl, but I think here um, it's especially effective because you're you're seeing him at the beginning where he's you know a little disheveled, but then he doesn't quite appear as disheveled because once we get into the tale. But then by the end of the movie, and then you go back to this, you know, scene where he's at in a hotel or apartment or wherever, um, and you now you know what he, the ringer that he's been through and and why he looks kind of as haggard as he does at the end. And I really, you know, I this, this particular scene and of course the ending scene, which kind of as Jeff said, all ties in together, just makes me really feel. For, for Carl more than I think in any of the TV TV episodes or stuff, because I just, I'm, he got a really raw deal as we all talk about. And you just, you see that in that opening scene, you just don't know it yet. But when you get, we go back around and we go back to him in that, in that apartment or hotel room, he got probably the worst deal in this particular movie than he got in any of the others you know he was always battling the the police or whoever who didn't want the 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 news getting out but man in this one they they really did him a dirty deal and it it cost him his 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 girlfriend um i just you you see that in this opening scene you just haven't got all the dots to connect together yet why he's in kind of the state he's in and um and by the end of the movie, you know exactly why he's kind of looking as haggard as he is. Yeah, Kolchak gets hosed, but yeah, we'll get we'll get there. <laughs> so, yeah, and we do see very early on here, you know, he was basically on vacation and he got called up and said, hey, come back for vacation. We got a story for you. So he's thinking, all right, it's this great story. And we see him and Vincenzo butting heads right away because he's like, oh, yeah, here's your story, pal. And he's like, what? You know, just this, you know, third rate murder. I don't want to deal with this. Like, you called me on vacation for this. And Vincenzo's like, yeah, shut up and go take care of it. So, <laughs> you know, we see uh, right away that, you know, he's like you said, it's we're, we're dropped right into this. But there's obviously been a fairly lengthy relationship with uh, Vincenzo there of them uh, not getting along. And again, fantastic uh, job by both of those actors there relaying that for everybody. So and again, it's it, it's it's everything. It's it, it's TV movie and it's only what about an hour and 15 minutes. So they don't really waste time on, you know, too many plot points or anything like that. It's kind of like, you know, they, they get in and they get out because I'm sure it was trying to fit into what, like a 90 minute slot, I would guess. Right. Yeah. 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 75 minutes with 15 minutes of commercials back then, which I think is which most of those TV movies from this time period are, are that 75 minutes. And I think that's why they're so good because they're, they're the perfect running time for the stories that you get. Most of the time there's, there's not any padding. Almost a lot of times you, you appreciate maybe another five or 10 minutes to, to expand on, on a, maybe a plot point or something. 75 minutes is a, the standard running time for movies. If you look back in the thirties and forties and mm -hmm. I've often, that's why I always think those movies are just the perfect runtime 
for the stories. Uh, sometimes that's all you need is 75 minutes. You don't need to expand it to two hours and, and add a bunch of unnecessary fluff that really doesn't matter. And, and that's why I think this one just moves along at a really kind of quick pace for sure. Yeah, and I mean, Kolchak, he doesn't really think much of it when that first girl gets killed. But then another girl gets killed, you know, fairly quick. And the way they find her body is really interesting. And that's when Kolchak's kind of like, well, this is kind of weird. Like, they basically, you know, find this woman's body, you know, out in the middle of, I wouldn't say a desert, but it's out where there's, you know, somewhere where there's sand all over the place. And there are no footprints, uh, you know, to where the body is that she would have been placed there. So that was a little weird there where Kolchak's like, mm, that's kind of odd. So. What did you think of that, Jeff? Yeah, that was good. And uh, I think I don't remember who commented that, well, how did she get there? Did he throw her? And that's something all through this of all the, the powers or you know, mysteries of a vampire. This one really plays up the, the force of a vampire, how strong he is. And, and he does. He tosses people left and right through the whole thing. And I like how the... the once we meet Kolchak, we're pretty much with him through his point of view for most of the rest of the movie. And the, it's a logical investigation into these murders. It, What happens, it's, I don't know, there's no great leaps of logic, really. And even Kolchak, well, he doesn't really play his cards. You know, you wonder how soon he really thinks that this is a true vampire. And how long is he really just holding that in? And, you know, he, he say, makes comments to the authorities like not indicating it's a real vampire, but hey, you've got to admit this is at least a guy acting like he's a vampire. And he kind of eases into that. And it, it, there's never really like a point that it's it turns and he like has a great realization. It just kind of, I don't know, he keeps that all internalized. And I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he it's it's interesting. It seems like there's like one little tidbit about every murder because they keep happening one by one. These women being killed. And, you know, like we said, the, the body out there in the middle of nowhere kind of like how to get there. And then, you know, Kolchak does kind of think to himself, you know, there's some strange things going on here. And then also there's this massive loss of blood with all these girls. So I think initially it seems like he thinks some guy is just, you know, you know, mentally unstable and thinks he's a vampire and is running around biting these women, not that it is a real vampire. And I think they even talk about that maybe in that one scene where I think it might be after the third girl was killed, where they kind of have a, a meeting with, you know, the DA and uh, Simon Oakland's character um, and uh, oh, who else? Claude Aiken's character, you know, the sheriff, you know, mm -hmm. they all have that. They all have that meeting, um, you know, about what's going on. So what do you what did you think, uh, Rich? Yeah, I you know the um, I always love those meeting, the meeting scenes. You know that they always seem to have those, but I think here in particular they were effective because it does give a, a foreshadowing of of you know Kolchak is you know where he, he's learning along the way, right? That's that some there's there's these little clues like you said the 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 victim is out in the middle of nowhere. How'd she get there? You know, mm -hmm. and he's and of course later. Uh, in, in the series, you know, he's he immediately will go from from point A to point C because he has seen things here. He's, he hasn't yet. So, you know, he's asking these questions, but you you get, you know, the usual pushback from the from the police. Um, and of course, they 
you know, don't want, you know, Carl, don't, don't say anything, you know, you can turn that, you can turn that tape recorder off, Carl. And, um, but you, you get the feeling, of course, that with each, you know, victim, and as Carl continues to, you know, provide them with information, have you considered this? Have you considered this? They're starting, they start listening to him more, you know, as, as the movie progresses, um, it's a foreshadowing of eventually where, you know, they clearly believe, they do believe Carl. They're just, you know, they're not willing to go out on that limb, but they're they're more than willing to let him go out on that limb. And you start seeing that. It seems like each of the meetings and each of the, the press conferences just continuing to to move the case along in that direction where, Carl is getting a little bit more respect because he's asking the right questions and pointing out the right things to where ultimately, you know, the movie eventually goes towards the final act. Did you notice with each one of those, they were like meetings slash press conferences, the size grew and grew more and more people were there with each one. I, as the murders escalated, I thought that was a de- a nice detail to show uh, that, hey, this is getting more interest, you know. Yeah, you figure more and more newspapers and stuff from further away from Las Vegas would want in on that. So, yeah, they think there's a big story there. That's a good uh, good call there, Jeff. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's it's a really like I said, it really moves fast. I mean, we you know, we get introduced to Carl's girlfriend, Gail, you know, like we said, uh, played by Carol Lindley. And she's really good, too. She's, you know, again, working at this casino and, you know, she's, you know, she's his girlfriend, but it kind of like they live together and. You know, she's really, I think, it, a good character because she's really supportive of him, you know, when no one else really is. You know, his boss is always kind of putting him down. The, the the cops hate him. The DA hates him. There's only like one real, you know, light in the guy's life. And it's uh, her character there. So I really enjoyed it. There weren't a ton of scenes or really long scenes with them, but I really did enjoy those scenes quite a bit when they'd be in the, you know, his apartment or I don't know if he was staying in a hotel room or whatever it was, uh, I guess. You know, he would be uh, there and she'd be there and they'd be talking about things. And I think, Jeff, you know, you had mentioned, too, how, you know, she's the one that kind of started steering him towards the occult and gave him a bunch of books. You know, when he was kind of still waffling on, you know, is this something, you know, supernatural or is it just, you know, my imagination? Is it just some, you know, crazy guy? Right. Yeah, I think I think Richard said that. I didn't want to steal his credit. Oh, but okay, I think, sorry. <laughs> no, the other thing that her role does like you look at Kolchak, he's sort of a schlub, you know, and I, pretty superficial. But I think like what in the world would a pretty girl have any interest <laughs> in him? But that shows, I mean, he must have he must be a good guy. He must have something inside that she sees. And I think that her presence kind of shows that about him, even though we don't really see it demonstrated, if that makes any sense. So I think that it brings out his humanity a little bit more. That's kind of where I was going at earlier is that there's a scene where she had fallen asleep and he, and he, you know, kind of wakes her up and, you know, he was clearly like, he wanted her to to hear him. He wanted there, he wanted her participation in the conversation and it bothered him a little bit that she fell asleep and it bothered her that she fell asleep. There's a, a connection there again, if you think of the later version of Carl, you know, Carl didn't have time for women. He didn't, he didn't, and you wouldn't have seen that side of Carl that you see in this, in this first movie. And I love those scenes with them. Again, there's 
there, there, there's not a lot. And, and, but when you do, they each scene kind of gives you a little something. Um, certainly. And again, I think that's just, there was uh, an odd chemistry between these two, because again, you wouldn't think Carl and, and, and her were not, you know, somebody you'd expect to be a couple. Uh, and again, Carl's like, as you, you know, Jeff said, he's, you know, kind of a schlub. He's just kind of sloppy and, you know, who would be interested in him? But clearly he had a human side that we get a hint at in a few scenes. Certainly, a little later on in, in in the film where he, you know, he wants to be with her and he wants her to, you know, he mentioned several times, quit your job, quit your job. He, he wants her to, to be with him. And, and that's a, a very human uh, side of Carl that we, we don't really see later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great stuff. And I do think too, at one point, this was wild. So they do, I think it might be, it's after one of the murders and they do get a description of the guy and his car and I think at that point or shortly after is when <laughs> they go to a used car lot and uh, well, actually Kolchak comes flying into the used car lot, like literally only minutes after the police were there uh, talking to the car salesman. And, you know, they, you know, they get a description and they, you know, this is what the guy looks like. And, you know, they, they start getting some clues as to who this guy is. And I think if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, his buddy in the FBI, Bernie, that, you know, does some digging and they find out who this guy is. And, oh, he's, you know, 70 years old and this and that. And, of course, that's when everybody's like, wait, what? There's no way this guy is 70 years old. And I think at that point there had been, you know, a confrontation at a hospital where he was stealing blood from the hospital. And he beat up a bunch of orderlies. And then the cops showed up and he beat some of them up and outran them. And it was it was wild. And they're saying, oh, yeah, there's press conference and his name is Giannis Scorzini and he's 70 years old and he's this and he's that. And everybody's like, what? No way. And. That's when it seems like, you know, Kolchak, too, kind of kicked into high gear with, you know, there's there's something not right about this. I, I really liked that leading up to all those things there. What about it, Rich? Yeah, you know, the, the um, you mentioned the scene there in the, in the hospital that, um, that that was a, a, a really fun scene. You know, that just mm-hmm. showed the uh, <clears throat> the power that he had. I, I will I'll I'll kind of peel back the curtain a little bit and be the wizard because I noticed something in that scene. That was kind of kind of fun uh, when you notice these little, I guess you call them a blooper, when he picks up the orderly and, and slams him against the, the cart and then kind of pulls him to slam him in the other cart. The orderly is holding on to the cart, which of course <laughs> causes it to fall over. And then he does the same thing on the other cart. He, he slams him up against it, the orderly grabs the cart and then gets, you know, pulls it down on that. That's kind of funny. I never caught that before. That's what happens when you see these films several times. You start noticing the little oddball things like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, you're, you're seeing the the strength and, and power that, that he had in that one scene. And the, I think the, the daringness of it because i mean he he knew he had been spotted but he didn't leave right mm-hmm. nope i'm getting the blood <laughs> yeah i've been caught but i'm not leaving you know and he and he keeps putting the 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 blood in the bag and, and then it's like then you know here comes in the orderly and then yeah then it's on and at that point you've got bodies left and right in the hallway um really fun stuff billy would this be a good time to talk about the vampire for a minute Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, that the, scene where he chucks him out the second story window, too. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The yeah. brutal. 
in many ways he's a typical vampire in many ways he's not i kind of got a kick about you mentioned the car i mean we don't often see the vampire tooling around town in a car that was (laughs) kind of interesting and also how much blood does he need i mean he's I don't know what the time span of this is, but it seems like he's killing every day. Plus, he's got a refrigerator full of blood. <laughs> I mean, he is insatiable. Carla <laughs> he's thirsty. That. Yeah, Carla <laughs> mentioned that. She's like, Guy, how many victims does he need? He's he's hungry. I was like, yeah, he, he's, he's a hungry boy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is, like you said, that is something a little different about this film that yeah, he just goes uh, blasting around in a car and it's they could have got him a, a better car, man. It's like a, a piece of crap. He should have got like should have got him like a Porsche or something. <laughs> yeah. And there's several shots that are close ups. It reminded me actually of Lugosi and Dracula, the way they lit his face where the, most yeah. of his face is dark, but his eyes, you know, are well lit and they're you could just feel the texture of his, his skin and then those red eyes. Very, very creepy. Yeah, even in the ending credits, they do that when they uh, say, you know, who the actor was for that. It, that's that's really cool. Good call. You know, the one thing that that just makes me think of is the the scenery uh, in this one is is obviously different because the the series takes place what in Chicago. I think the second movie is set in Seattle. This one's Vegas. You know, bright lights and uh, not the usual setting that we're used to seeing. You know, Carl Kolchak in. We see him in kind of the uh, stereotypical you know big city with the big buildings but here it's all flash and lights and the city that never sleeps and you know what an interesting playground for a vampire right uh almost a bit more difficult though because well there's always going to be victims but there's always going to be people and witnesses too and i think that adds to he's he is a different vampire He's, he's daring you know he's and he's not I know you never, you know, we don't really find out much about him, but you definitely don't get the the hint of he's Mr. Romantic Vampire and, you mm-hmm. know, I'm going to mesmerize you. No, I'm just going to kick the crap out of you, throw you out a window and, you know, be on about my business. He's, he's a, a, a bit more brutal in, in his style. And, um, you know, I think that's about all you need to know. I mean, the, the, when the women see him, yeah, there, there's no, oh, my God, and then the heavy size, and it's like, you know, you get, this, this is not Franklin Jella showing no. up uh, in any way, shape, or form, and I, I liked that. I thought that was fun. I'm glad yeah. you called out Las Vegas, because I actually thought it was a little bit underutilized. I mean, maybe it's just, I'm so used to it, seeing it so many times, but they I don't think they really I think they could have milked that for a little more that it was in Las Vegas and some of those things about Vegas that you mentioned. I, I agree. Yeah, I think they, you know, it, it was a little bit, but they could have done more with it. And again, if you would have had maybe another 15 minutes, I, this movie could have gone beyond the 75 minutes and not felt padded with maybe another 10 or 15 minutes of footage. And I think, yeah, it'd be one of the things you might, you know, utilize the locale a little bit more to fill in that extra running time yeah and i think the, i think if i'm not mistaken the thing that really pushes kolchak over the edge and thinks yes this this is a vampire is that second chase scene with the cops where you know he he literally they, like a dozen cops can't take him down and then they shoot him like point blank range multiple times and he still gets away and gets up and jumps a fence and everything that's when he really is just like, this is a vampire. And of course, you know, the cops are like, you know, no, it's not you dummy. But then I do like how, you know, they eventually 
clear out from the the big press conference, and it's just the you know the DA, uh, the sheriff, and I think uh, Bernie might be there, and Kolchak, and you know after he reads all those books that you know his girlfriend Gail gave him, you know he figures out, hey man, we need to stake this guy through the heart, and he eventually you know convinces the police this is what we need to do, but you know then they also kind of make a little side deal with him as well, and. I think that's uh, his downfall there at the end, uh, you know, heading towards the last uh, bit of the film, isn't it? What do you think, Rich? Oh, yeah. It's almost like, you know, once you see it the first time, you see it the second time, you're kind of screaming at your TV. It's like, Carl, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. You're, you're going to get screwed in the end. And, you know, he always gets, you know, kind of hung out to dry in one way or another um, on the series. But here, you know, they 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 believe him, or at least they allegedly believe him, and they they're using him to they, because clearly they can't stop him. They can't, you know, anything they've done has been useless. So here's an interesting idea. So let's let's have Carl run with it, and you know, if he's wrong, well, you know, things aren't going to go well, and if he's right. Hey, we'll give you the rights to the story and the keys to the city, and you'll be wonderful. And they'll give you a parade. <laughs> I mean, they 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 just they kind of promise him, you know, what he wants, and then he does everything that he's that he's expected to do and goes above and beyond. And yeah, it's it's you know what's coming, you know, once you've seen it the first time, and it's frustrating because he he never gets, you know messed with as bad in, in any of the others um, as he does here in this one uh, by this group that and especially I you know was that the mayor or is it the chief of police I can't remember is that uh, chief of police I think yeah he's ah yeah not not a good deal I feel sorry for him really especially you know at the end of there and you just kind of see the frustration and he you know again jumping ahead a little bit but when he talks about the uh you know looking for his girlfriend he can't find her and he says something tells me i never will find her and that's i don't know what that implies you know it's like if they chased her out of town you'd think she would try to find him you know it almost implies that maybe they they did something even worse to her you know not saying that they you know there's a body somewhere but uh, really maybe scared her and to put her into a position of of just immersing herself somewhere else and that's it. You know, Carl's never going to find her. So and that's, and it's because of those guys and it's, and it's, you really feel for him. That's he, an interesting thought. I just assumed, yeah, she, she went away and she, he doesn't know where she goes and he'll never see her, but he's an investigative reporter. He could probably find her if he wanted to. So I never really thought about anything nefarious going on, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think the police would have done no. that, but they could have given her a good scare. That's for sure. That's what I think they did. I think they, yeah. they scared her enough. And it's like, you know, plus, you know, if you go with whatever she was doing was maybe not above board, if she goes to any other city, you know, it's, not going to be le- as legal as as it you know c- was in Vegas, and so and she wouldn't have a casino to work at, so she's going to be a lot more off the radar, and a lot harder to find you know. And of course, she doesn't know where Carl's going to end up, and it's not like we have cell phones back then, so it would be pretty easy, I guess, to lose touch with somebody 
if you're forced out of town and the other person's forced out of town and you have no way of contacting each other, kind of a sad, kind of a sad story. Uh, part of the story, I, I really feel for him. I yeah, wanted to not- point out you were mentioning the the point where he the police sort of come around and start believing him. Mm-hmm. Great acting by by McGavin. He just looks so self satisfied. Yeah, have come <laughs> around, and when he takes his, the bag and opens it, and there's the crosses and the stakes in it, he just he looks so proud, and he's kind of smiling, and it's just it's fantastic. Yeah, I think he's so sick and tired of those guys busting his balls. When he knows he's right, he's like he's going to enjoy every second of it. <laughs> and then he does get a tip from. Uh, you know, Elisha Cook Jr.'s character, Mickey Crawford, who's just kind of like, uh, I don't know what his profession is, maybe professional gambler or something. <laughs> but uh, he does, you know, send give him a picture and says, hey, send this, uh, you know, show this picture around to all the real estate agents in town and see if any of them recognize this guy. And that's how he gets the tip on where this guy lives. So, you know, uh, Kolchak, you know, kind of makes, uh, I guess you could say, makes the mistake of, you know, going there to, I would assume, confront him because you don't know if he's going to be home or not. So you just have to assume he's going to be home, uh, this vampire. And that's, you know, what leads into the final act here. And uh, I, I was really blown away by that final act of this film. I really enjoyed it. What about you, Jeff? Yeah. And again, the atmosphere gets kicked up like sort of like it was at the beginning with the style. There's a, a point of view shot from basically inside the refrigerator and Carl opens it. And he's in this dark house and it's pretty dark and shadowy, but the light of the refrigerator illuminates his face. I really like that scene. And again, this vampire is a little bit different because Carl holds a, a cross in front of him and it makes him just barely shy away, but he still moves towards Kolchak. And then uh, the sunlight, when it hits him, he doesn't, he's not a, a Christopher Lee, he doesn't disintegrate. Uh, so it's it's it, yeah, it's I'm even realizing as we talk about it now, what a force of nature this vampire really was. Mm-hmm. What about it, Rich? Oh, yeah, he's definitely very, very strong. And, and the the battle, I mean, the final, you know, confrontation is is really well done. And as Jeff pointed out, I mean, the, the simple things that like the cross or the sunlight that would, you know, cause any other vampire to like, you know, start melt and turn into a puff of smoke and and or definitely shy away and screech and scream. Yeah, you're not getting that with the, this vampire. He's brutal. He's strong. And um, I don't know, you know, you can kind of imagine for those of us who've seen a gazillion vampire films is like, you know, his age and has given him, you know, a tremendous amount of strength. Uh, over the years and maybe that that constant feeding <laughs> that constant <laughs> that blood is keeping him keeping him strong maybe that sets the secret to his success is like you know a, a pint of blood a day uh <laughs> i don't know keeps van helsing he, away yes exactly <laughs> Keep Van helsing away yeah and then it is just a punch in the gut when he's finally staking him on the stairs and of course that's when the authorities rush in and you just know they're gonna set it up that he killed this guy and and then even not you know insult to injury was it was it the da that was sort of his friend or uh, whichever one of them was sort of his friend saw it and knows he didn't do it but you know he has to play along and then you know later when they're sort of everything's being wrapped up 
doesn't he kind of look at Kolchak and like mouth that he's sorry or, or yeah. shake his head or something? Yeah. Uh, so that's just, yeah, that's a very emotional uh, gut punch after everything we've been through. I yeah. kind of thought his friend was was maybe with the government, I thought, or had government connections, which is always kind of like, well, why couldn't he do more in that in that scenario unless it was just he was out of his jurisdiction? He's the FBI, and, I think. Yeah, and, and maybe maybe because he was there with Carl when they walked in, maybe they threatened him as well. It's like, look, we can press charges against you because, you know, you were an accomplice. Um and that may be, you know, maybe why he he backed down, but he clearly felt for Carl. He and he clearly wished he, you know, he could have done more for Carl. I didn't realize he was FBI. That makes sense because, you know, this is contained in Las Vegas. Can you imagine if this became a federal incident, and you know, a federal investigation got in? He's almost got to keep it quiet. Yeah, he even says to Carl as he's heading out, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll find you. We'll keep in touch. And, uh, yeah, they already have his bags there for him and everything. And that's when they, you know, they they give him the line of he's like, oh, I want to call Gail. And they said she's already gone. She left town. And that's when they, they say the line about, yeah, we we told her we don't want uh, any undesirables, you know, around town here. And I kind of think uh, you better tell everybody in Vegas to pack up and leave, pal. <laughs> <laughs> it's Vegas. Well, man. and I mentioned that. Yeah. At the end of the movie, he says everyone who had any connection with this is either, you know, dead or missing. Yeah. Or, has left, or has left town. Or cremated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so they clearly, you know, kind of, you know, cleaned house a little bit. Although we, you know, for those of us who watch the series, we know that mm-hmm. uh, we do get a sequel of sport, uh, of sorts. You know, what, there's a victim that was, what, unknown, who ends up coming back in, in one of the early episodes of the series. And uh, it, it kind of a... Again, it's kind of a, a pseudo sequel to to this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the vampire, the vampire. That one's called. Yeah, that's an early one too. But yeah, good stuff. But yeah, it's so what a sad ending, you know, because you basically you know see Carl driving off and saying that he was trying to find Gail, but you know he can't find her. He's 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 just basically God only knows where he's going to go to try to get a job now, and he's just kind of like you know in the dumps and then back at that hotel room where he's just sitting there and. He does make mention of, yeah, you know, don't even worry about trying to find out about this story because, you know, all the bodies were cremated and everybody else is either, you know, dead or gone or, you know, was, you know, silenced by the authorities. So it's basically a case that's, you know, doesn't exist anymore. He's just sitting there with that look on his face like, you know, he thought he was going to go back to being in New York, being a big high profile, you know, reporter. And now he's just left it even, you know, worse, uh, worse off than he was before. So you really feel for him. Yeah, definitely worse than than any ending of the the series where you know because he's always on the on the bad end of the stick, but he never loses his job. You know, he's always like, "Well, I've still got a job," and sometimes he's vindicated in some of the episodes a little bit, even though you know he never gets to do the big headline. You know, here, I mean, he's lost everything. You know, lost his job, lost his home, he's kicked out of town, and lost his girl. Um, definitely a, a downbeat ending, you know, for, um, I think this is probably his worst defeat. Mm-hmm. Yay. 1970s downbeat. endings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're true there. So any final thoughts, uh, Jeff? Uh, yeah, I just want to say that it's kind of the whole thing, putting it together, 
you think of so many of these TV movies where the characters are just characters and you don't really care. I mean, they're fine for the period of time that you're watching it, but they just sort of come and go. This is a really fully realized character that sticks with you. And I just think that primarily is what sets this above all the others. Mm -hmm. Anything else, uh, Rich? No, I, I agree on that. This is it definitely is what sets it above the rest. I think that, you know, there's some heavy comparisons as when we talked about the Norlis tapes, you know, there was clearly some, some comparisons to how they, they approached both. And I think the Night Stalker is, is obviously, a, you know, several steps above uh, the Norlis tapes. There's a lot of potential in the Norlis tapes, but Darren McGavin and, and just the, the way this overall production went um, is just a notch or two above uh, the Norlis tapes. And that's why Night Stalker got another movie in a series and the Norlis tapes didn't. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. And so, I just want to mention real quick, I know we don't have time to go into it, but the Night Strangler, the sequel, I think is really good. I like it as much, uh, but for different reasons. So I, I really recommend that people watch that one as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely worth a watch. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think a, a, a huge consensus is it's not quite up to the Night Stalker, but it's it's even if you do feel that way, it's still very much worth a watch. Absolutely. I totally agree with you there. So, all right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for uh, the Night Stalker here. And we're going to take a quick break and then be back with our uh, double feature here. Okay, everybody, we are back, and it is time for our second film here. And this is one that's, you know, a, a good bit lesser known than The Night Stalker here, but it's uh, one of my favorites. Uh, I can watch this one uh, quite often as well. It's called Scream of the Wolf from 1974. And it does, uh, you know, share some uh, people behind the scenes uh, with The Night Stalker as well. We have, uh, you know, producer and director on this one is uh, Dan Curtis. So, you know, we did talk about him uh, at length a bit when we uh, went to uh, the Kolchak, the Night Stalker film from 1972. And then uh, again, Richard Matheson with the, the writer, the screenplay uh, from a story called The Hunter by David Case. And that's not one I've ever heard of either book wise. And I've never heard of David Case either. So uh, either of you guys ever hear of him or of that book? Not me. Not me. I would say the, the title is much more in sync with the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's a little uh, a bait and switch with this one here. You know, we'll <laughs> we can show our hand uh, right now with that a little bit of bait and switch here. But it's it's still a pretty good mystery up until, you know, that switch happens. Um, so I think I can I can forgive it for that. You know, I didn't feel like uh, when that happens, I was let down really much by it, maybe a little bit, but not not a ton. So I was uh, I was still OK with this one. But uh, so why don't we just jump right into the cast then? So. Uh, this one is starring Peter Graves. So, of course, everybody, you know, uh, that's watching you know, television and films knows Peter Graves. He's been in, again, a, a million and one things. Uh, of course, uh, for me, this is uh, one of the things I think of when I think of Peter Graves. And I know that makes me kind of a weirdo, but it does. And then uh, Airplane as well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I think of there. So what about Peter Graves, Jeff? Yeah, that's the, exactly me, too. And I know he's been in so many things in Mission Impossible, but... Yeah, I don't know what that says for his legacy, but that's exactly what I think of as airplane. What about you, Rich? <laughs> you know, for me, 
I, although Airplane is great, I will say Mission Impossible because that is on Pluto TV and they have been playing Mission Impossible and Carla, my wife, fell in love with that show just in the last year or two. And so there was a period of time where she was just kind of watching whenever she would sit and have a minute, you know, or an hour, I guess you'd have to, she'd watch and that's like Peter Graves. So it's like, I'd be walking in the room. It's like, there's Peter Graves. There's Mr. Phelps. There's Mr. Phelps again. There's Mr. Phelps. So <laughs> yeah, Mission Impossible immediately comes to mind. And one of my other favorite made for TV films, um, Where Have All the People Gone? Uh, mm. I, love, I love him in that. So Peter Graves has just got a fun, uh, I don't know, he's not a character actor, but he's got a fun style that I've always enjoyed. And yeah, Airplane again, I agree. That's, that's a fun, that's a classic. Yeah, Peter Graves, I, I enjoy him quite a bit. Really, really enjoy his style. But what about uh, Clint Walker? So this is a guy that, a big, uh, scary dude. Uh, <laughs> this is a guy I would not want to have uh, ticked off back in the day. Uh, but he, had, again, tons of Westerns. And then he did, you know, a few of these 1970s uh, TV, made-for-TV films. Uh, uh, I'm sure you've uh, watched and uh, written about a bunch of them, right, Jeff? Yeah, I think he was in the only one that's coming to top of mind is Killdozer. Mm-hmm. I believe he was in that. I don't, I know that name, I'm just not as familiar with him as an actor, and I'm not sure why. Uh, he's been in some some great stuff, but uh, not too familiar with him. Rich, I bet you are. Well, I mean, I, there's a show that I've seen some episodes of called Cheyenne. Uh, that was a big show mm-hmm. that he was on in the mid to late fifties. On I think gosh, or into the early sixties, he did over a hundred episodes of that. I think um, so. I've seen a few of those over the years. Um, all right, random other films. I know he was in like uh, the Dirty Dozen and and More mm-hmm. Dead Than Alive, which that's a uh, I think that's the Vincent Price film if I'm remembering correctly. More de- More Dead Than Alive. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, he's the main character in that one. Like uh, a a gunman who wants to leave the business and kind of gets pulled back into it. Uh, Anne Francis is in that one as well. That's a good, that's a a good movie that doesn't get talked enough about. Um, he's one of those guys that you know by the by the 70s he was popping up in just random things and um, very. He's his style kind of is a uh, Gregory Peck kind of delivery, uh, mm-hmm. but he didn't have the the acting chops or the charisma of, of Gregory Peck. Um, kind of, and especially in this film, he's he's kind of uh, stilted in his performance, uh, which I think actually works in this particular film. But I've seen him in some other things, and it doesn't always work quite as well. But um, I think Cheyenne is probably the one thing that he's the most well-known for, which is a Western that doesn't get as much recognition now because Westerns don't have the love that, you know, they used to. People think of Westerns now, they think Gunsmoke Bonanza. You know, those are the two that immediately come in. A lot of, there's so many other Westerns in the 50s and 60s have been kind of forgotten. And, and Cheyenne is one that, you know, doesn't pop up too often anymore. But I remember... The few episodes I've seen him of in there, he was good. Yeah, one other TV film that he was in that I really love, and it's super, super cheesy, but please forgive me, is uh, <laughs> Snow Beast from 1977. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the sheriff, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. It's a, it's like literally super cheesy, but I, I can watch that one all the time, too. I love that one. He was the sheriff in that one. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely, definitely watch that one up. But, you know, it's really, there's only one other. Well, I shouldn't say that two other people that are kind of main characters. Everybody else is kind of just like, you know, just on the periphery. And I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name correctly. Joanne, is it Flug? That's what I've. That's in my mind for some reason. I thought it was Joanne Flug, but it could. It's been a while since I've heard it pronounced. So, yeah, she she plays uh, Sandy Miller, who was the you know uh, girlfriend of Peter Graves' character John Weatherby in the film, and she's she's pretty good too. I like her in this film. You know, I have seen her in some other things. I can't think of what it is off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure I've seen her in something else as well. It just like a one-off here or there. Not like I mean, I don't think she ever did anything like super huge, but um, yeah, she's yeah, you know, she did some TV and everything as well, right? Yeah, I she I know her as like she guest starred on almost every series in the seventies, and I don't know how I really know her. Uh, probably one of those shows, and mm-hmm. maybe she was like a regular on something like The Match Game or something, but. I'm very familiar with her for some reason. She did game shows for sure. Yeah, if it wasn't the match game, she was on something. I, that's where I remember her from as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at her credits here, and it's like she had been guest appearances on Love Boat, Chips, Dukes of Hazard, One Day at a Time, Night Rider, <laughs> like Adam 12. Oh, that's where I've seen her, Adam 12. She's a lady cop on that show on an episode. So that's probably, but Charlie's Angels, she's, yeah, a ton of TV. And she was in The Night Strangler. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Connection to our first movie that we talked about, right? Yep. Yep. The Kolchak series. So, yeah, that's 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 other than then the sheriff, who's Sheriff Vernon Bell, and I did not recognize that guy at all. His name's Philip Carey. Anything on uh, that one, Rich? Uh, I don't have anything on on him. I, I do have something on one of the other characters, but yeah, I'll mention that in a second. I don't have anything on Philip Carey. Jeff, do you? No, he looked very familiar, though. And I'm sorry, I want to go back to Joanne Flug because mm-hmm. she was in an episode of, I think, Wide World of Mystery. It was a late night ABC show. And Rich, she played Nora Charles in a TV movie called Nick and Nora. You're a, a big Thin Man fan. Are you familiar with that? I'm I, I'm not. I know there was a, a series. I, I wasn't familiar. There was a... A movie. The problem with The Thin Man is that, you know, the, the originals, William Powell and Myrna Loy, are so good that it really is hard for anyone else to kind of fall in those those roles. I've seen a couple episodes of the TV series, and it's really hard to accept them in in the and I'm trying to think of her as as Nora Charles. And I'm like, that would be really hard because Myrna Loy is so good. And yeah, Rich, I don't know who your other cast member is, but you better not take mine, and you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> well, hey, you can, you two can fight it out. Rich, go first. <laughs> well, well, if, I'll mention the name, and Jeff, if, if this is yours, I'll, I will pass it off to you, and I won't steal your thunder. I was talking about Don McGowan. Oh, nope. Go ahead. Okay. Good, good, good. Uh, <laughs> so Don McGowan is uh, one of the... Uh, he plays Grant, which I think is, is the... Um, was uh, Clint Walker's character's like right hand man? I think. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any. I'm thinking that's him. Um, based on his picture, I'm pretty sure that was him. You know, obviously a little older. He played uh, in the Creature Walks Among Us. 
he oh, was wow. the last of the uh, creature trilogy. He played uh, the gill man on land after the the creature gets burned and loses his gills, and they try turning him into a land creature. He played the uh, the land version of uh, the gill man, and he was in a, a few other uh, horror related things around this time period. He was in a movie called um, The Werewolf, where he played uh, the sheriff in that in '56. And uh, one of the most notoriously bad movies of, of all time, The uh, Story of Mankind in 1957. Uh, he, he plays early man. This is a movie that's got Vincent Price as the devil. Uh, I think Peter Lorre, I think, plays Napoleon. Uh, the Marx Brothers are in this and in separate roles. It is a... You've never seen it. Seek it out and watch it at least once if you can make your way through it. It is a bizarre, painful film uh, that Turner Classic Movies every once in a while pops up. And he was also in a, and I've not seen this one, but the 1958, uh, was it a TV movie or pilot, Tales of Frankenstein? He plays the monster in that. Mm -hmm. I've never seen it. Um, I think it was a pilot for a series that never happened. Yeah, it never happened. But yeah, uh, and that was from Hammer. Did you say that? Hammer no, in it, Columbia. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, that's that's the Hammer series. Yeah, yeah. He I've was never also. Seen that the, I'm, I'm looking here. He was in the creation the creation of the humanoids, which is a sci-fi flick from '62 that I I saw a few years ago. So, um, yeah, a few things. A lot of TV stuff by the time you get to the to the '70s. So, I would check some of those out. Uh, Jeff, you said you had somebody. Yeah, mine was James Storm. He played Gerard Stiles on Dark Shadows. And Dan Curtis would every once in a while use one of the cast members, usually in really small parts. His part here is very small. He's one of the, well, his character's name is Boy. He's one of the victims of the killer. Um, so always good to see a Dark Shadows person. Yeah, well, like you said, with him being the, the, the guy in Dark Shadows, you know he was going to be like, oh, we need somebody. He'd be like, hey, you. And he'd call him. I'm sure he had them on speed dial. Hey, let's get over here. We need you. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, well, anybody else, uh, you know, cast-wiser behind the camera there that you guys want to mention? I, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, I do want to mention the music, and I should have mentioned it actually in Night Stalker. Um, Bob Cobert, who was... Yeah. Again, Dark Shadows, but worked with Dan Curtis on the bonus features for Night Stalker. There's an interview with Dan Curtis, and he talks about how he met Bob Cobert and I don't know where they were out somewhere. And he had written the theme for Dark Shadows and didn't have any way to play it. And so Dan Curtis told him, well, whistle it. And he did. And Dan Curtis loved it. And he used him in every single one of his productions after that. Yeah, I was going to mention him as well for Night Stalker. I totally forgot about that. That was another connection with the you know, the, the the production crew, the behind the scenes as well, because I think the music in both of the films is great. Yeah. And he's well, he and Dan Curtis both borrow regularly from other productions and, and sort of repeat. So there's always a little snippet of music in these movies that is from Dark Shadows. You can just tell a stinger or a little riff or something. But he also always expands it and, and does make it unique to the particular production. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you mentioned him, Jeff. I totally brain farted there. But uh, all right. Well, if you guys are ready here, I'll just you know, launch into a little thing. There's just a little two liner here on uh, IMDb. It just says uh, a big game hunter comes out of retirement to help track down a killer wolf 
and begins to suspect that it isn't a wolf, but an animal that can take human form. So <laughs> that's a, that's, that's, that's going to get us there. So this one is another one too, that, you know, it, it bam, you know, the, the movie opens right up and it's action. And one of the death scenes right out of the gate here. So uh, I really liked that. And then, you know, it kind of like sets everything up as it goes along, but the action right out of the gate, I, I'm a big fan of that. How about you, Rich? Yeah, I think it, it's uh, it starts strong. Um, I think it's it certainly, I think, um, I would say for the first, you know, third to almost half of the movie, it, it the pace that's established, it, it, it keeps that for the most part um, before it begins to kind of drag for me. So I think it, you know, it sets the bar pretty high in this opening scene and that that might be one of my you know the ultimate problems with this film uh which <laughs> i'm kind of you know showing my cards here is like you know at the some of the problems i have with the movie later on i think comes into play is that you start really strong in this opening scene but i'm not sure that you know there's a point in this film where they're not quite following up on the strength that they established in this opening scene mm -hmm. How about you, Jeff? In several ways, this kind of mimics the Night Stalker. Some plot points and, and structure is a little bit similar. So it, it does start out the same with a murder. Much more, uh, to me, personally, more interesting murder. It's not just uh, someone being thrown around in an alley. It's, you know, there's claws reaching through a roof of a car and breaking the windshield i mean it's very this, these aren't either one bloody or violent really but this is a it's a very intense opening and uh, i i like it strong opening i don't know that i felt it drag like richard said um but characters are not not as um, substantial as you know darren mcgavin and in, in night stalker and i think this is a good pair of movies to demonstrate again what a difference that that made uh, mm -hmm. And it, it, a little point too, again, mimicking the structure in Night Stalker, there was a headline during the murders that said uh, vampire killer on the loose or something. In this one, there's a headline that says werewolf killer strikes again, you know, something like that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, with, the, with a lot of the same people, I think there's some uh, things that might, might be reused. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's like kind of, if you look at it, there's really two pretty quick murders here. And. The, the, the cops have no clue, but they think, you know, hey, there's animal tracks and the, the, the persons that were killed are like basically torn apart that they're barely, you know, you can barely tell who, who they are. Well, they go in, you know, uh, help uh, seek help from uh, Peter Graves character, John Weatherby, because they know, you know, he's he's a writer by trade, but he used to be you know, a, a big game hunter uh, and go on all these trips and stuff like that. So. They go to get him to be like, hey, what are these tracks? What kind of animal are we dealing with here? And he's even kind of thrown off by some things that don't seem like kind of possible from any kind of animal tracks he's seen before. And, you know, it does, you know, throw a little mystery into things right here from the get go. And, you know, again, scream of the wolf. They are giving you the impression that, you know, pretty early on, you're thinking, wow, this is a werewolf that's killing these people, even though it's, you know, we'll, we'll find out later. That's that's not quite what's going on, but that's what the the road they're leading you down. And. I, I did like that part of the movie uh, for sure. And then <laughs> eventually, you know, uh, Weatherby says, hey, you know, I, I can't figure out what's going on here. And 
Uh, let me go talk to my buddy Byron, who is uh, our uh, pal Clint Walker here. So uh, what did you think of uh, that uh, introducing him in there, Jeff? That I think it's a great setup for a movie. The uh, one thing I wanted to point out with with no violence and, and gore really is the, the description that the script uses to sort of describe the murders and the uh, sheriff at the beginning when he shows Peter Graves the body we don't see it but you know Peter Graves is like oh my god his whole face is gone you know so that good horror movies don't have to show you they can make you think and, mm -hmm. and so I really liked how they did that so just. And I'm sure it was a low budget as well, but that's just a, a good way to maximize, you know, what they've got. I did want to ask you a question. The synopsis you read, and I've never really thought about it this way, is they suspect that it isn't a wolf, but an animal that can take human form. Do they ever really suspect that? I mean, I, I realize they see the the animal tracks and they kind of turn into human tracks and they mention that, but... They never really play up on that. They still talk about this being a, a werewolf, or did I miss something? Mm, yeah, I always got the impression they always thought it was some kind of animal. I don't remember, especially the police, ever coming to a conclusion that this was that there was a man involved with this. What about you, uh, Rich? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I agree. I don't. I don't think. Uh, I think right from the get go, they were they were thinking that it was uh, some kind of animal. Yeah. But even when. Uh, Peter Graves, you know, starts thinking it's something more than that. He goes to werewolf, not, you know, the opposite of a, an animal that can turn into a human. Yeah, I think by the end of the film, you know, that final act, Peter Graves has a couple of lines that leads me to believe he eventually figured out what was going on. But there's really up until that point, there is nothing to make you think this isn't going to be a werewolf as the killer here. Yeah. Yeah, it's just what I got from it. And one of the things I haven't decided about this is it's a little bit heavy handed when um, Peter Graves meets Clint Walker after many years and they shake hands. The camera zooms into their two hands. And then when they're done, Peter Graves kind of like looks at his hand like I guess the guy was probably strong and probably squeezed his hand. But right from that moment, you kind of makes you think that, that Clint Walker's a bad guy. And of course, throughout the movie, that's what they think is going on. Joanne Flug definitely is afraid of him and thinks that it's him and cannot convince Peter Graves that he is the one <laughs> responsible. Uh, and so how did you guys feel about, I don't know, like manipulating us, I guess, into believing something and then sort of preparing us for the, the twist that's going to come. Did you ever really think that it was Clint Walker all along? And I know I'm jumping ahead, Billy. Sorry. That's OK. Go ahead, Rich. Um, so I'll answer your question. I know I having this. This is my first time watching this. So uh, and I had no idea of what the twist was, which is always fun. Uh, when you watch these old movies and you don't know what the spoiler is, that's hard to do these days. Um, I, you know, I, that scene, I, I got it was like, a, you know, he, yeah, you know, Clint Walker was just kind of like trying to mark his territory almost in a way. I was like, yeah, I'm stronger than you are. Mm -hmm. And and so there's that it, it's leading you down that well ooh, maybe he's the werewolf maybe he's you know or he's involved somehow because he, he was just he was always acting odd right and he was always aggressive and um 
then I guess the course of the movie goes on, I begin to think, well, you know, maybe that's just all a red herring, you know, yeah. and maybe maybe it's his assistant. Because his assistant, you know, in the one scene later on in the film, you know, he's always smiles and, you know, well, you know, you know, hello, Mr. Weatherby. And but then when when, you know, Peter Graves, you know, challenges, you know, or you know, begins questioning Clint Walker, you know, he's like right there in Peter Graves' face. And that makes me think it's like, oh, you know, maybe he, maybe it's him. I don't know. I, 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 you know, I, I felt like he, Clint Walker was the obvious, oh, he's involved and he, maybe he's the, the werewolf. But then I, in the back of my mind, the whole time I'm thinking red herring, red herring, red herring. It's not him. So. Yeah. That's how I felt. I felt they're making it too obvious. It's not going to be him. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting the way it turns out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, up until we meet Grant, and then especially the second time we see him, you're you're thinking to yourself, well, who else could it be at this point? Is it some character we haven't met yet? And I'm thinking, well, you know, a TV movie, again, it's like 75 minutes. They really don't have time to screw around and wait until the 60th (laughs) minute to introduce a new character. So that second time where Grant kind of gets in Weatherby's face because Weatherby's, you know, given Byron the business, Right away, I'm thinking, oh, it's got to be Grant. It's got to be Grant. You know, I'm thinking it's too obvious that it's Byron. But, you know, again, we're going to find out, you know, there's there's a lot at play here that we haven't seen yet. Uh, But what did you guys think? I want to hear your thoughts. My favorite scene in the movie, without a doubt, is the scene where, uh, you know, John and Sandy are having dinner at like a restaurant bar. And uh, Clint Walker's character, Byron, comes in and he, he ends up saying to them, hey, I came into town to get some supplies for my hunting trip. And all the stores are closed because of all the chaos going on in town. And, you know, uh, they're calling in the National Guard because of all these murders that are unsolved. And, you know, there are some people at the bar and then he notices they're over there and he goes over to, to talk to the two of them. And uh, I love the interaction between those through those three characters. And then also the, uh, the 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 I don't know if he's supposed to be like a, you know, air quotes college kid. Uh, the guy looks like he's 40. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I do like that interaction there. What uh, what did you think of that, Rich? That was a good scene. Yeah, that that was a lot of fun. I mean, again, it's it showing you how aggressive uh, Clint Walker is, which um, you know kind of ke- keeps you guessing. Again, it's like, you know, is he involved? Is he not involved? Is he a red hair? Is this a red herring? You know, uh, that scene certainly supported that he was perhaps the one behind it. But and then again, I'm thinking it's too obvious, and so. Is like, yep, another red herring scene. It's like you see too many movies, and it's like, you know, you start second guessing yourself when you're trying to figure out what's going on. And that's what that scene did to me. It's like, I loved it, and it showed how aggressive he was. But then it's like, maybe he's just an asshole and he's not really involved in this, but they're wanting us to think he's involved in it. That's, that's how I, I came out of that scene. And what I liked about that scene was one of the lines he said, Some people are saying it's a werewolf. Now there's an animal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, so that, that kind of adds fuel to like, you know, he's because he would be the one, right? If if if, it, if he was the werewolf, he'd, he'd be bragging about it almost because he's just he's got that arrogance about him, you know, mm-hmm. which is is a unique if 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 this would have been a werewolf film traditionally, that would have been an interesting take because normally when we see uh, a werewolf or a wolf man, he doesn't want to be 
aggressive. He doesn't mm. want to be who he is. He's he's tormented. Think of Lon Chaney. He's like he's he's definitely not happy with it. This would be a guy like this. This is who you wouldn't want to become a werewolf because he's got that arrogance and he's like, ah, cool. Now I'm a werewolf. You know, he would be the badass werewolf. Absolutely. And he does a really good job, Clint Walker, because it also you get the impression he's doing it just to screw with them, you know, to say something outrageous that will scare them, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the air quotes student is a, an actor named Lee Paul, and he's there with a bunch of his friends, and he overhears, you know, Byron talking about his hunting and this and that and how this is all cool that, you know, people are getting killed and everybody's on edge about it. And this uh, uh, student comes over and, you know, basically says to him, like, hey, pal, I heard you, you know, saying you're a hunter and, you know, how, uh, why do you get off on, you know, supposedly being an intelligent human being and hunting these defenseless animals? And Byron says, uh, I couldn't tell you. And uh, the student says, I thought not, sir. And he tries to walk (laughs) away. And he says, I could show you. And the guy turns around and says, pardon me. And he goes, I said, I could show you. And he gets up. And I think this other guy is a pretty big guy, too. But they kind of do a little bit of a perspective shot where they have the camera pointing down at this student to make Clint Walker look like this giant. And the whole time, you know, Peter Graves' character uh, Weatherby, John Weatherby and Sandy are sitting there having dinner and they're looking up because he keeps getting closer to this student and finally gets right in his face like nose to nose and says, shall I show you? And you're like, you know, this guy's ready to crap his pants. And <laughs> then John uh, gets up and says, whoa, hold on, Byron, like calm down. And he looks at John and says, it would have been so easy. And that's when you're like, yeah, this guy really is a psycho. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, not now. Not now. No one has any idea where this animal comes from. Sandy, nobody has any idea what this animal is, much less where it comes from. You know, in 20 years of hunting, I have never run across a predator even remotely like this one. And it's driving me nuts that I can't run it down. Then why doesn't your friend Byron help you? I don't know. I don't know how he can resist the challenge. You know, I'm going to go to my grave, not understanding how the two of you could be so close for so many years. You have to understand him. He's a... Speak of the devil. Hmm. Here he comes. Byron. Good evening. Came into town to get some supplies. Stores are closed, thought I'd drop in for a drink. Don't worry, I'm not gonna join you. Oh, sit down. Now, come on, sit down. Was I right? About what? The animal killing again. Yeah, yes you were. Fascinating creature, or whatever it is. You find it fascinating that four human beings have been slaughtered? Some people are saying it was a werewolf. Did you know that? <laughs> yes, yeah, I heard that. <laughs> I don't scoff. Remember that wolf we went after in Canada? How the Indians said that it wasn't a wolf at all, but a trapper turned into a wolf? Mm-hmm. 
Now, there was an animal. There was a man killer. You never could accept that the life of a predator is superior to that of its victim, could you? What? I said he could never appreciate I, I heard what you said. It's believing you that I'm having trouble with. That's a lovely dress you wear. <laughs> well, Byron and I never really thought too much alike. We almost did once. To wait in the trees. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the allure that mortal danger holds for you always left me a little bit cool. But only in mortal danger are we alive, Jock. Only by risking our lives can we truly appreciate them. What kind of a life are you leading now? What kind of a life is anyone around here leading now? Emasculated by society and safety? Well, uh, we're enjoying it. I give life as well as take it. The animals I kill are never more alive than in that instant before my bullet strikes them. Come on. And I'm never more alive than in that instant when they could kill me just as easily. I couldn't help overhearing you, sir. You're a hunter, aren't you? Why do you want to know? Perhaps you could tell me what the pleasure is that full-grown and presumably intelligent men get from murdering defenseless animals. Hey, look, I think you better just... Uh... I didn't mean to intrude, of course, but tell me. Is it a sense of power? A sense of accomplishment? Or is it a regression to the past when killing animals was a way of life? Sir? I couldn't tell you that. I thought not. I thought not, sir. I could show you, though. I beg your pardon? The pleasure I get from killing. I could show you what that is, though I doubt you'd die with the nobility of an animal. Shall I show you? Shall I? Byron. <laughs> You're pretty good. You almost had me convinced. Would have been so easy. <laughs> yeah, and he says that he talks in that interaction with him about the pleasure he gets from killing. And he says, though, I doubt you'd die with the nobility of an animal. Yeah, that's really great. And yeah. I did like, too, how earlier then when they were still sitting there talking before this uh, guy uh, interjected himself into the conversation, you know, Sandy, you, she really hates this guy. And she's trying to be, uh, you know, not nasty towards him, but she's letting him know with, you know, her body language, how she really hates this guy. And at one point she says something to him and he looks at her and he goes, that's a lovely dress you're wearing. And she kind of <laughs> squirms like, you creep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love that scene. And it's soon after this scene that, if you aren't suspicious yet, we learn that Byron was badly bitten by a wolf in the past, and he came close to dying. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, isn't it right after that interaction that very evening when Sandy, you know, is at her home and she gets, she doesn't get attacked by the, the you know, air quotes werewolf, but it, it comes into her house and almost does get at her. But the police and John show up just in time to, you know, frighten it off. But uh, that's a, it's a pretty compelling scene there. A lot of uh, angst there, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, so absolutely. she's going to go stay with John for a while after that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Move, moving in there. I wonder if they have, you know, separate beds like the old TV shows or <laughs> yeah. two twin beds pushed apart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, that's that's pretty wild. But then at one point, too, you know, the cops, uh, they really think Byron's the guy here. So, you know, the sheriff, uh, sheriff, Sheriff Bell, he's, you know, kind of staking out his house. And then uh, he has one of his, you know, deputies come and, you know, he's basically the night shift because, you know, again, the sheriff's not going to do the night shift because he's the sheriff. He's the boss. And uh, this uh, deputy, you know, he hears or sees something going on and he goes into the house, which I kind of thought, um, <laughs> dude, like you don't have a warrant or anything like that. You, you can't really do that, dude. I, I, you know, you can't really just go in somebody's house. But that's a, a pretty uh, wild scene there, too, isn't it? It is, yeah. It, that happens so often in in horror movies, and and whenever I see a scene like that, I, I I immediately start to chuckle because it's like I can do a countdown of three and two and one, and then there my wife just chimes in. It's like she says, "Oh, what are they doing?" It's like, "Don't they? You know, they can't do that." You know, it's like I know, but if they didn't do that, do you know how many horror movies wouldn't happen? You know, if people respected <laughs> respected property. That you'd wipe out about half the horror movies. Yeah, you're thinking, uh, you know, it's like, you know, he could get shot, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. he's trespassing, technically. So, and, you know, getting shot might have been the better end of the deal when it ended up happening, unfortunately. Yeah, not that, yeah, he, you know, you don't want to say, well, he deserved it, but he should have known better. But he was the young cop, so he didn't have the experience and... Yeah, should should definitely. Uh, and how often do they they do you know stakeouts in that you know rural area? Probably the first he ever did. So um, and, and it would be his last. But mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't end too well for the cop, you know. And again, it's a really good scene. No blood, gore, nothing about nothing like that at all whatsoever. But very intense scene where you know this you know again air quotes werewolf uh, we can't see comes at him and you can tell it scares the crap out of him and he tries to shoot at it and just you know ah and that's how the scene ends and boom cuts to the next scene so really really good scene there i really like that one again for for a movie that you know has a little bit of a uh, bait and switch to it there were some really intense scenes to it and that was definitely one of them so yeah yeah, so then what about (laughs) you know uh, this is again probably my second favorite scene uh why don't you speak on this jeff where uh you know whether be then uh, goes to Byron and kind of says to him, like, dude, quit screwing around. You've got to help me find this killer. You know, there's people getting picked off left and right. And he kind of challenges them to an arm wrestling contest. This yeah. is a wild scene. What do you think? Yeah, that's he's just playing with them again. He's he, he likes to screw with people. And you don't ever suspect for a minute that Peter Graves is going to win that arm wrestling fight. No. Um, and but then, then this is kind of weird because he because he won you know he's not gonna help and then you know in a few minutes later he's just changed his mind really for no reason mm-hmm. yeah he goes to his house and was like changed my mind thought it might be fun and of course sandy's <laughs> sandy's like wetting her pants like 
oh no, it's him. And she's like, John, don't go with them. And he's like, what do you mean? You told me you wanted him to help this whole time. And she's like, you know, no, I don't want you to go with this guy because I think he's a nut and he's the guy behind all this. But uh, I think it's, it's at that point when I watched this film multiple times, I think it's at that point where maybe it's from seeing it multiple times. But I think that's the point where he, you know, John says to himself, you know, mentally, like, even if there's a 10 percent chance Byron is the guy behind these killings or he is a werewolf, whatever, you know, I want to go on this little uh, excursion with him. Because either we're going to find who's doing these murders or it's going to be, you know, me against him. And it's it's up to me because nobody else can take him down. I mean, that's that's kind of how I look at it. What about you, Jim? Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I, I want to interject something here and I uh, I don't want to get too off track and I don't want to get controversial or anything. But mm-hmm. reading about this movie, apparently it's had uh, people have seen gay overtones between the two men. And oh. I never have really felt that. I don't know if you guys did, but I, I kind of read that before I watched it again. And there is a, a particular line that kind of made me think, hmm, maybe I can see that. Because uh, in that fi- finale, um, he Clint Walker explains, I didn't want to kill her. I wanted to arouse you. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Huh. Um. Gosh, you know, I, I I didn't see any of that. And then now I'm sitting here trying to go back in certain scenes. And, you know. I mean, he wants Clint Walker wants Peter Graves to go away with him on a hunting trip. You know, he wants him. Well, to... you know, I suppose you could see that um, whether that was that intentional. I would say no. No, I don't think it was intentional. I, I think. But could you could you read into that with a modern audience? Absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, because Clint Walker, I mean, you know, as it, we're going to reveal here, I mean, it, everything he did was because of John. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, and he wanted John to, you know, I'm jumping ahead of here a minute, but he, he wanted to to John to regain that killer instinct. But there's never, you know, I don't know, you don't get any hint that, that you know, Clint is in any way interested in in Sandy in that way. You know, I mean, he's he's an odd duck. And, uh, you know, could there be, you know, some some undertones? Possibly. You know, I didn't see it before, but, yeah, there could be some of that, certainly, in, in the movie. I think that uh, if... You could certainly do that. And if this movie was to be remade today, I think you could you could definitely play around with that. And that could be an interesting subtext, uh, an interesting, you know, layer to the twist. Uh, Absolutely. You know, this movie hasn't been remade, but somebody out there might want to think that it could be an interesting, uh, interesting layer. Because you certainly I didn't ever got that feel from from John. Because clearly he's interested in Sandy, but maybe, yeah, it's a one-sided thing from from Byron. Yeah, possible. Yeah, it's tough to figure that out because that's kind of the only one. If there would have been a couple other things during the film, maybe it would make me think that. But that's the only thing that you could kind of, you know, go down that road about. But Byron's just kind of a real nut. And to me, he's just so crazy. It's hard to get a read on him you know, either way about (laughs) his preferences, because he's just like, all he seems to have is one track mind of 
being this apex hunter predator guy. And that's all he, he thinks about, cares about, other than, you know, having a former friendship with John and kind of feeling like almost like John was, you know, close to that level as well. But he's seen him, you know, probably in his words, go soft because he's not a hunter anymore and just, you know, a writer and, you know, not going on these hunting trips and stuff like that, that, you know, you, you get the impression he used to respect him, but he really doesn't anymore simply because the guy doesn't hunt, which is kind of goofy, but that's the way Byron thinks. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah. So well, yeah, let's get into this final act here where the, you know, we, we find out, you know, John uh, goes to the house and, you know, he, well, actually I think he finds the dead cop and, you know, then it does go into the final scene here where, you know, he goes there and, and basically Byron cops to it that, you know, he's uh, he's the one been behind all this. And then he shows him this, you know, trained dog he has that looks, I don't know what kind of dog it is, but it's it's one scary looking dog. It's, yeah. you know, got teeth for miles. And, you know, he basically says to him, like, yeah, I was the one doing all these murders, but there's no werewolf. There's just me and my buddy here, uh, this crazy dog. And, you know, we're going to ha- have one more game here where, you know, I'm going to hunt you. And uh, you're going to have a, a, you know, here's a gun and there's two shells out in the middle of a field somewhere. And there's one for the dog and one for me. And he's like, that's your choice. Either do that or go on this hunting trip with me. Well, you know, those are your choices. And, you know, John's just like, you know, I'm not doing either of these things, pal. And he tries to leave and he basically sicks the dog on him and the dog's ready to rip his head off. And he thinks, well, I guess I have to do what I have to do. And, you know, this, this, this uh, hunt happens here. So, yeah, really, again, pretty intense scene here. Uh, what do you think, Rich? Yeah, I mean, um, gosh, a power play, you know, happening going on here. And uh, mm-hmm. it just this is where Clint Walker's quirkiness as an actor really comes into play is, is in this final act, because, you know, it's it's been handy throughout the course of the film, um, you know, as you're trying to figure out, you know, is he, isn't he, is, you know, are they just sending me down the wrong path? And then he, he, you know, the twist happens and now he reveals, you know, what's going on. And then, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's his aggressive, quirky nature all of a sudden goes from being, well, what an odd duck, what an asshole to this guy is legit insane and, and crazy and not somebody you'd want to mess with. You know, I, I alluded earlier that I felt like the film had a point where it was kind of dragging. And for me, 75 minute movie, for some reason, you know, roughly about, I don't know, 35 minutes ish into the film, 40 minutes, maybe there was a point where it, for some reason, the, it felt like we were just on a treadmill. And then of course, when we get to, to this final act, then all of a sudden it's just like, it starts to speed up for me again. So I, I love the setup of the film, but there was this point about maybe 20 minutes mid-film where, and I can't really explain it, it just wasn't working for me. It just seemed like it started to get sluggish. And then we finally get to this twist and it's like, okay, now now we're back on track. And it and it started to, to, to click again for me. Um, and, and once we get to this, this final act and the twist has happened, I... I got most dangerous game kind of, kind of feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's like that. I was like, Oh yeah. It's like almost, you know, that wasn't his intent, 
but it was kind of like, okay, well, I, you know, I'm going to hunt you in a way, you know, it's like a little different, but definitely I got strong vibes in that, and in, in that, uh, you know, most dangerous game feel at this point. How about you, Jeff? Yeah, I get that too, Rich. That's a good, good call out. I, I, I had a, th- a thought here as I was thinking about the ending because basically Byron turns his back and, and walks away and says, you won't shoot a man in the back. And he's so arrogant that, you know, he may believe that. But part of me just wonders, do you, I, do you think he had any kind of death wish? I mean, because uh, Peter Graves is going to shoot. I mean, he, he has to. He, he says, I can't let you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think that's kind of Byron's uh, whole lot in life. It, it, he's going to either do things his way, you know, hunting and doing this and doing that. Or it's like, oh, well, if I can't, I'd rather be dead. I think that's kind of how he is. Mm. Yeah. So I, I got I, for me, it was more arrogance. I, I felt like he was so overly confident that his way was right and what his way of thinking was right that he legitimately did not think Peter Graves would do that, which is why when I think when he gets shot, there is this kind of like, he's kind of shocked and he he's pissed, you know, and he kind of makes that last lunge more or less, you know, as he's kind of moving down before he finally, you know, collapses. I think that if, if he had a death wish, he wouldn't have done that. I think it was arrogance. And then it was, how dare you? You did that? Okay. Then I'm going to, you know, with my last breath, you know, uh, the, the the con line from Wrath of Khan, you know, <laughs> my last breath, I stab at thee. Yeah. Oh, that's that's exactly kind of the, the gist I got of that scene. Yeah, and then the camera pulls up and it's over. So pointing out again a difference between the Night Stalker, you know, this didn't, in my mind, didn't have any character as strong that we really care about them. What happens next? We don't need to see what happens next. Whereas in Night Stalker, of course we did. We wanted to know what was going to happen to Carl Kolchak. Yeah, yeah. For me, the the Night Stalker, it's, it's akin to a really good ongoing comic book. You know, with a good good ongoing story with the other movie and then the, the television show, where this is just like a one and done kind of comic book story. Yeah, something you'd find in a horror anthology. Yeah, you know, yep. yeah, it entertains you, and the story's done, and you move on to the next. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely spot on. So, all right, well, any uh, final thoughts on this one, uh, guys? Jeff? I remember the name of the book. It's Television Fright Films of the 1970s by David Deal. I definitely recommend that. And there's also a book, The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis, Dark Shadows, The Night Stalker, and other productions. That is also an excellent book. I've used both of those on my uh, journey through the TV terror guide. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look for that one. Jeff, you didn't squeal when you said that. I'm disappointed. So. <laughs> <laughs> squeal? Yeah, where was the squee? Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I had some time to become more reserved about it. Uh, all right. I, I will say that that um, I, you know, I enjoyed the movie again, except for that middle part where it kind of you know drug on for me. I would love to see a better print of this. Obviously, you know the Night Stalker is is you know on DVD and Blu-ray now, and and you know it, it's um, looking as good as it's ever going to get. 
I don't think that this movie has had an official release on DVD. I think what we've gotten are the, are the, the string of bootleg releases. VHS uh, or something, yeah. Yeah, so I, I would love to see somewhere on some shelf there's a, a, a good, you know, uh, copy of the film. And I'd love to see, you know, Shout Factory put it out on a Blu-ray that would probably be way too pricey, but let's <laughs> put it out <laughs> a good, a better copy of it for sure than, than what we've had. I'm thankful that it's out there, but I think, gosh, and, and, and you wonder what you're, you're missing from some of the darker scenes or the scenes that are just, you know, not quite as, as uh, crisp and clear. I'm never expecting a high definition version of this, but I'd love to see a better copy of it out there. Yeah, the the night scenes were at night. They were very dark. They were they were not great. And like you said, just the, the overall print itself is not awesome. But yeah, both of these films you can find on the ready YouTube. You know, again, maybe the prints aren't the greatest here and there. But if you just want to see them because you've never seen them before, start there. You can find them streaming everywhere. YouTube, whatever. Right. Yep. Mm hmm. All right. Well, guys, thank you for joining me. These uh, two films are a blast, and I enjoyed uh, tremendously talking with you guys about them. So uh, if anybody is looking to find you guys out there, where is the best place where they can start, Jeff? I would say we usually direct people to our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Mm -hmm. We've sort of built a little community there, and we're each of us own announcing our own projects and things on there. So that's a good jumping off point to find the podcast and our blogs and anything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. What else, Rich? Anything else? You know, that's a good spot. Uh, we both have, you know, different blogs that uh, that we promote. Um, I, I will mention mine real quick, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Um, and I'm going to force Jeff to, to call out his, but, uh, definitely if you go to the classic horrors club podcast, uh, Facebook page, everything we do is posted there. And so that's, that is a perfect jumping off spot, but Jeff has got two really good, cool blogs, very different. So I'm going to put them on the spot. Well, classic horrors club we mentioned and then i've just launched a new one billy you might like this i don't know not particularly horror but dc comics is my thing and it's got such a convoluted history and i wanted for my own personal ease <laughs> to figure it all out so i'm actually going to be writing about the history of the dc universe the fictional history kind of trying to put it in some type of narrative order where it makes sense so that's just a new project I've started, and that is called Codex Omniversa, which oh, if cool. you are a current reader of DC Comics, you'll know what that means. If not, go to CodexOmniversa.com and find out. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'm more of a DC newbie. I've only been, I would say, moderately heavy into DC for about 10 years. Before that, I was almost like, I was probably like 90% of uh, the comics I consumed were, you know, Marvel and then mm. a little bit of Dark Horse and a little bit of DC. But the last five or ten years, I've really gotten heavily into DC, especially Silver and Bronze Age stuff. Really enjoy it, having a great time with it. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the people I podcast with when I talk about DC Comics, they are very steeped in it. They've been buying since the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So yeah, I'm, I'm getting an education and having a really good time. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to checking out that uh, uh, website, Jeff, because uh, again, I'm really, really uh, falling in love with DC Comics, which was kind of an outlier for me for a long time well good that's good to hear 
Yes, absolutely. So fantastic, you guys. And of course, all these things will be in the show notes. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with these guys, definitely look there. And uh, I'll have all the web addresses and all that stuff in there as well. So once again, thank you guys tremendously. This was a blast. We will have to do this again, maybe even uh, towards the Halloween season, because I really ramp up things at the Halloween season with episodes. I think I had 15 or 16 podcast episodes come out last October, almost one every other day. So wow. yeah. Yeah, really looking forward to Halloween. Love me some Halloween. So maybe I can convince you guys to uh, talk about something else for Halloween. Maybe even comics and, and movies. You bet. Uh, this was a great time. Thank you very much for inviting us. And I would look forward to doing that again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having having me back and, and uh, having Jeff this time around. We I would love to come back. Fantastic. All right. That's uh, going to be a wrap then. And uh, we're going to jump out of here right now. And I will come back in a minute to wrap things up. Okay, everybody, that wraps up this episode. Once again, I want to thank Richard and Jeff for being on the show. Two really good guys. They got a good show, a Classic Horror Club podcast. Definitely check it out. And then I'll have links to that and both of their blogs as well in the show notes. And uh, yeah, definitely give them a shot. You know, two really good guys that love movies and are a wealth of knowledge about the uh, movies, especially horror, sci-fi and stuff like that. So definitely give them a shot and uh, be back here again in two weeks for another episode. Catch you then.